Good morning. How are you this morning? Everybody okay? Happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. This is always an awkward day for me because people, uh, both men and women, walk up and say, Happy Father's Day, and I, I'm inclined to say, same to you. You know, it's just kind of, uh, it's just what the polite thing to do to greet people back the way they've greeted you. But uh, to you, those of you who are dads, and especially to those of you who are new dads and, and dedicated babies this morning, I hope that you understand the raw power that you have in your child's life. I hope, that, uh, I hope that you know that the people who show up on the news for doing all that awful stuff, that, uh, that, that largely uh, those are people who really had no father figure in their lives. Dad was absent or delinquent, uh, didn't care as much as, uh, as we would have liked him to, and, and, uh, and so they end up making the news, and we're not blaming Dad for that. We're just saying that the Dad could have had an influence in those lives. A good Dad could have influenced those lives so powerfully that it could have turned them around. So, I'm, I'm, my wish for you this morning, dads, is that if your kids ever show up in the news, it'll be for all the right reasons. You know, that's just what we're, we're talking about. Um, I, I, I want to start this morning by, by showing you some, uh, some pictures, actually. They're going to appear there, and, and uh, they're pictures that aren't going to make much sense at all. Um, but uh, the reason that I'm showing them to you is because, you know, there's an old adage that says a picture is worth a thousand words. And so I put three pictures up there to earn the right to share 3,000 words with you. And since the average man over the course of an entire day only speaks 5,000 words, this is just going to be a long message. That's all there is to it. I don't know if we'll, uh, we'll get it all in by the time we're done. But I want to tell you a story this morning that... Uh, that really explains what's going on in those pictures. I know you can't see them that well, but, uh, but uh, that I, I want to tell you a story, the, the story that actually led up to that. That's something that's going on right now that uh, under normal circumstances would not at all be possible, and you'll uh, get a feel for that, I think, as I begin to tell the story. I've, uh, we made the decision because there were going to be two missions trips uh, this year. One of them starts tonight. I'll be leaving... Uh, I'll be leaving just after midnight tonight for the airport and, uh, and not back again for two weeks. And then about two weeks at Splash, and, and that's going to be another missions emphasis Sunday. And then about two weeks after that, well, no, I'll be in Brazil and India. About three weeks after that, there'll be a second missions trip that will be a vision trip. And a bunch of folks from here will be going on that trip. And so uh, uh, we want to be able to tell you the story that's the driver behind all of this, and uh, I've been praying that God had just used it as an opportunity to challenge you, and uh, I'm well into my 3,000 words, so I better, get, I better get moving here. In order to actually begin, I, I don't want to break with tradition this morning. I'd like it if we could stand and read a passage of Scripture together, a passage that may be familiar to some of you uh, or may not. It might be a, a new passage, but uh, oh, dear, I, I see how those words are all squished together, but uh, I have confidence in you. I, I'm going to get a little closer myself. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9 says this. Would you read aloud with me? Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. 
And the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the word, the world of that time, it wasn't making sense, was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Thank you. You can take your seats, confess that even those tiny letters contain the truth from God's word, and, and we're blessed by that. Uh, Peter is, uh, is sharing with us a perspective about the last days, and he's telling us uh, Peter was there in the upper room that day that Jesus said, uh, uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would not have told you that I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's a promise that he made there in the upper room talking to his followers. And, and Peter would have been more intimately aware of the reality of that promise than any of us ever could be. We do have God's word and it reveals it to us. But, but Peter sat there that evening, that night, just before Christ went to the cross and listened to that voice. He heard the voice of God sitting there in the upper room. And a promise was made. That I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place and since I'm going to do that, I'm just going to come back. Know that I'm going to come back someday to receive you to myself. Well, Peter says here in this passage that, uh, that, that you know, it, it's, it's been a while. It had been a while when Peter wrote this. He wrote this near the end of his life. He was one of the last of the apostles to be, to be executed uh, for his faith, for believing in Jesus. And and uh, he, he wrote this at the end of his life, and, and he said, you know, there's going to come a day when, when scoffers are going to show up. Um, scoffers, people that, that don't really believe the truth or don't want to agree with the truth, and they're going to say, whatever became of this promise that he made? Didn't he tell us he was coming back? Look, look, look at the world around you. He's not coming back. How can you possibly think that he's coming back? But I love the way Peter phrases this. Uh, he's, just, he's just got such a way with words. He says that in order for them to do that, in order for them to say that the promise might not be kept, they have to deliberately forget. Did you catch that? This isn't something that they missed. They deliberately forget. Oh, my goodness. They deliberately forget that there was darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters there in Genesis chapter 1. And the, and the voice of God spoke and said, Let there be light. Yeah. And dug on it there was. All of creation came into being simply by the spoken word of God until the creation of, of the first man and the first woman. God actually shaped bodies and, and he got more involved with Adam and Eve than he did with any of the rest of creation. But the voice of God created the stars all scattered across the universe. Also, it was the voice of God, Peter says, who, who spoke to Noah back in those days and, and, uh, and told Noah that a flood was coming even though it had never rained before. And so Noah gets busy building this ark because he believes God's word. He believes what God has said. And sure enough, the flood came. And sure enough, this earth is reserved for fiery judgment at the end of time, all by the voice of God. And I, uh, it gives me 
Oh, man, it gives me goose pimples when I think about this. But the voice that said, let there be light. And the voice that decreed that there would be a flood is the same voice that sat there in the upper room and said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Still, it's been 2,000 years now. And that's a long time. I mean, someone makes a promise, and, uh, you know, if your dad promised that he would take you to the zoo when you were nine years old, and now you're 39 years old, and he still hasn't taken you to the zoo, I don't know how to put this to you, but you're probably not going to the zoo, at least with your dad, unless you remind him of his promise. You know, sometimes we make promises, and we can't keep them because time runs out, or I just don't have the ability, or, or something intervenes. And, and, and that happens to all of us, but, but with God, that sort of thing doesn't happen. I mean, there's never something that God doesn't see coming. There's never something that, that when this happens, he sits back and says, well, you know, I didn't expect that. I don't know what to do now. That never happens with God. He's never, he's never slow for the same reasons that people are slow. But still, when you come down to it, 2,000 years is a long time. Well, Peter helps us with that. He says, you know, the Lord created time. He doesn't live in it. So to him, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. And, well, it, it's not as long for him as it's been for us. But doggone it! Two thousand years is still a long time. We'd be, we'd be right in thinking that. That's a long time. We're ready already, you know, God. Why don't you just take us home? Why don't you just come and receive us to yourself so that we can be with you? Peter actually shares a perspective there to try to explain to us what's going on, why God is delaying. And the truth is, according to this passage in Scripture, the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet, the reason he's still delaying, is that he's being patient. And I know what we, you know, we immediately think. I remember the day that I discovered this as I was studying this particular passage of Scripture uh, so, that, uh, so that I could understand what it had to say and uh, he's not slow in keeping his promises some understand slowness he is being patient it says in that last verse and it's the part of the verse would you where you would expect God to be saying that the reason he hasn't come back is because he is being patient with them with those people out there who still haven't believed he's being patient you might think that but that's not what it says let me push this button one more time and highlight that one word there He's, he's not being patient with them out there, with those unbelievers. It says, instead, he is patient with you. You. Us. He's being patient with us, those of us who have already believed, those of us who already see the power of the gospel at work in our own lives. He's being patient with us as he waits for something to happen. And Peter fills us in on that. At the bottom, he says, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should understand the truth and, and believe that Jesus has died for them. So he's not, God is, well, God certainly is being patient with them, but that's not Peter's point. Peter's point is that God is waiting for us. He's waiting for us to do something that, that at least contributes to this idea that, 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 that speaks this idea that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I want to I tell you a story that provides some background both for this trip and those buildings and, and at least provides some answer to what Peter 
had to say there. It has to do with a group of people. And I always, uh, this is the part where I always say, I, I, I wish I didn't have to use a thousand words. Uh, I, I should actually be entitled to more of that because we have people come and visit with us over there in the Philippines in the Sierra Madre, the large uh, mountainous spine that runs down the island of Luzon there in the Philippines. That's where the Bukalo tribal people live. Uh, people take all kinds of pictures, uh, thousands of pictures when they're there. So I don't know, I should have a million words coming to me, but I won't take that many. I know it's Father's Day and uh, you're going for barbecue or something, I'm pretty sure, unless, unless your wife is taking you out for French food or something like that. And uh, I don't even know where you, where you do that in the Ozarks. The Bucalote live in the Sierra Madre. And uh, uh, a, a, village, a visit with them today is, is entirely possible and you can get around up there and meet people up there. But back in the day, not so many years ago, a, a visit among the Bucalote would have ended with all of us that went on the trip, dead. The reason that I say that is because the Bukalo were headhunters. And, and no, I don't mean corporate headhunters. Like one dear lady asked me when I told this story down in Alabama, what do you mean by headhunters? No, it, it's not corporate headhunters. The Bukalo were headhunters. It was, it was so deeply ingrained in their culture that it was, it was impossible for a young man to get married until he had taken a head. Within was the, that was the requirement, that was the rule. In order to have a place of influence within a, within a village or within the area, he, he had to take a head. And, and th this whole process began when the kids were just really, really little. They were, when they were three or four years old, if you have a son, and, and I know it was just daughters today, uh, and I'm so glad for the more daughters, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But, but when your son was two or three years old, and how many here, uh, fathers are not ashamed to say they have a son? Okay. All right. There you go. I knew it would be more than three people to, uh, on that one. But when your child was two or three years old, you'd sit cross-legged across from him in your, in your thatch-roofed house made of woven bamboo on the walls and, and sometimes rattan down on the floor. You'd sit across from your son as a three- or four-year-old, and you'd explain to him that the day is coming. Someday, son, you're going to grow up and be like me. You're going to grow up and be like your grandfather. You're going to grow up and be like your uncle, all of your uncles, and you're going to go with me on a headhunt, and, and, and you're going to have the opportunity to take a head. I, 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 I don't want to offend any of the little ones that we have here, and if you're concerned about them, then... Um, feel free to, to take them out, but I, I need you to hear this story because it, uh, it speaks to the grace of God. Uh, someday you're going to take a head, you would say, and, and then when, you're, when your son got to be 12 or 13 years old and, and they didn't mark time by years, they, they kept harvest in, in mind. Uh, none of them know when their birthday was or, or how old they actually are, but when your son's voice began to crack just a little bit when he was talking, you know, as it began to change, You'd get to be 12 or 13 years old, and you would participate in a headhunt as a, as a good father. And because your son has gotten to that age, uh, it, the, it, well, you would, in participating in the headhunt, you would take an arm or leg from one of the victims, and you'd carry it back home. And if I were to ask you, as you were making your way back up there, what, what you were going to do with that, you would say... Uh, I'm going to give this to my son so that he can become accustomed to cutting human flesh. 
And I know I have friends up there who would tell you, and they could tell you if you visit, that they remember their father bringing something like that home and, and then taking a bolo, one of the long head-hunting knives that they have, and, and, and he would, the father would wrap his son's hand around that bolo and then wrap his hand around that hand, and, and, and I could introduce you to men who remember that being done to them when they were 12 or 13 years old. By the time your son turns about 18 and it's clear that he's old enough to, to take a, a head, you would participate in a headhunt and the way that would happen is you would, you would take your, uh, make a bolo for him with its kaubun, with its scabbard, and, and, and you would pull the bolo out of its scabbard and you would hand both to your son. He would tie the scabbard around his waist and then he was not allowed. He was not allowed to put the bolo back into the scabbard until he had used it as it was intended. Headhunting, it, it, it permeated the culture. It was the most noble thing a man could do, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but it was the most noble thing a man could do. It was the rite of passage into manhood. And uh, it, 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 it spread so far and so fast and was there for so long that the Bukalot, who, the Bukalot practiced uh, payback killing, not revenge killings. They practiced payback killings. And in a, payback, in a revenge killing, if you kill my son, I'll respond by taking your life. In a payback killing, if you kill my son, I will respond by killing somebody that's important to you so that I can pass back that angst, that, that animosity, that, that deep sadness that you caused me to feel. And what that meant was that, that, uh, that the headhunting practice began to spread and, and so many people were passing back animosity and there, there was so much uh, interchange and, and it, it just would happen over time that, that if you were from, if Brian was from the village of, of Gingen, keep these names in mind, if Brian, if you were from the village of Gingen and I was from the village of Kauaian and we met on the trail, that meeting would have to end with one of us dead. That was the, wa it was the way it went because so many people from your village had killed so many people from my village. They were angry at each other all of the time, and they were spreading further and further out into the lowlands. And, and by the time, well, 1912 rolled around, they, they had their first exposure to outside culture. They were living in, the, in this dark void. And in 1912, an anthropologist named William Jones, and you could look it up, he's, he's all over the internet, an anthropologist named William Jones decided that he would go in and study the Bukalo. He would learn their language and get to the place where he understood them. And, and uh, well, he just, he just wanted to figure out what was going on with them so he could write an ethnograph. And, and uh, he got up there and, and made contact with one of them who spoke a little bit of the national language and, and, and began to talk with that person. And I, I, to this day, uh, because his records were destroyed to this day, I, I don't know how he actually got in with them. But uh, he found his way in there and was, was, uh, had begun to study them, and he was there about six weeks. And at the end of the six weeks, he ran out of supplies, and so he contracted some Bukalot men to, to go out with him to the, to the lowlands, and they were going to carry the stuff up for him. Uh, you know, he was going to go out and buy it because they couldn't go out into the lowlands without being killed. And, and so he was going to go out and buy it and then bring it back. And, and somewhere between up there and down here, at the top of the mountains, down to the, to the lowlands, an argument broke out between uh, Professor Jones and the Bukalot men 
regarding how much he was going to pay them for his help. And I, I, I don't, I just, let me just say this to you. Good rule of thumb, never argue with a headhunter. It's just, it's just not very wise, and, and I, I, I say that lightly, and I, I really probably shouldn't because uh, we think that Professor Jones won his argument, and the reason that we say that is because he lost his life. Uh, the Bukalot men there with him killed him and, and, uh, and, and cut his body, and, and they went back up, and that was the end until 1946, 1945, when, when Douglas MacArthur was making his way up the Philippine archipelago, you remember, I will return. Uh, that's, that's what he said when he left the Philippines. He was making his way up the Philippine archipelago and, and found his way to Manila. And when he got to Manila, Manila had been declared an open city by the Japanese army. They didn't want to take on MacArthur and his forces with the little bit that they have. And they all went north and, and pretty much directly north and east of Manila. There's a spine of, of, of mountains called the Sierra Madre, and, and the, the, well, the Japanese ended up right in Bukalot territory. And when I told my friend Takashi Fukuda, uh, I think it's an Irish name, um, but Takashi Fukuda, I was, I was helping to check translation for him one time, and we, it was break time, and he said, so where do you work? I said, well, I work with the Bukalot, and, or the, you know, some people call them the Ilongot, and his eyes got so big. He said, man, oh, man, he said, they are in all the Japanese history books because of what they did to the Japanese army when it made its way north. So, so academia didn't conquer the Bukalot. The Spanish never conquered the Bukalot when they ruled there. The Japanese didn't conquer the Bukalot. And the headhunting continued to spread far and wide down into the lowlands and even further. And finally, in 1954, the Philippine government made a really fatal decision fateful decision, I suppose I should say. They decided that they were going to take the Philippine army up and sweep through Bukalot territory because they had tried to stop the headhunting. Uh, they were going to sweep through Bukalot territory and, um, and, and just kill all of the men and, and older boys. That's what they were going to do to remove that, this, that urge from, from the, lands, the, the, the landscape there. At that time, there was a mission organization that had about seven people in it literally seven people in it, and they had, they had come and established there in, in, in 1954 for the sake of, of reaching tribal people in the Philippines. And Ramon Magsaysay, again, you could look this up in the, in the Philippine history books, was the president at that time. And the guy that was in charge, he was president because, well, he was the one of the seven that got chosen for that job, I guess. And, and uh, uh, he he decided that he would, he would try to get an audience with Ramon McSaisai and, and ask for permission to work with the Bukalot. And so, uh, and so he, he, he actually got the audience with Ramon McSaisai and sat down with him and said, please, sir, you, you can't do this. I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but you can't just go in and, and wipe out a people group. You can't just go and kill all those men up there. Well, they're killing our people. Yes, sir, I know. But if you'll give us an opportunity, we'll send some missionaries up there, and, and they'll preach the gospel, and they'll teach the Bible, and, and you'll see the Bukalot will stop their headhunting, and, 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 and it'll be safe again. And uh, for some reason, uh, it had to be the grace of God, Ramon McSaisai gave in. He said, well, okay, you know, I'll give you some time. Why don't you... Why don't you just send some folks up there and, and see what you can do? He was very dubious, but he gave permission. And, I, you know, for the sake of the, just the interest of it, let's imagine that it's 1954. 
I, I know that most people that are here this morning would just disappear if it was 1954, as would I, actually. But uh, let's just imagine that it's 1954, and, and, I, and I'm the president of our little mission organization, and, 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 I've, uh, and I've come home, and, and I've said to you, um, hey, um, I, I just I talked with the president, and we've been, we, this is so exciting, we've been given permission to send some missionaries up to the Bukalo. So remembering that no one has ever been inside a Bukalo territory and lived to tell the story, could we have a couple of volunteers to go and reach those people? You know, I, I, I can't imagine a lot of hands going up. I have deep confidence in you, but I, I can't imagine a lot of us being willing to take that risk. There was a single uh, American there named Marvin Graves and another single Filipino named Florentino Santos. And they volunteered. <laughs> they volunteered. They didn't have a plan. I mean, there was no plan. You couldn't, you couldn't actually... They, there was no peace child among the Bukalot. There was no desire at all to lay headhunting aside. It was the most noble thing a man could do. And so, what are you going to do? Are you just going to show up up there and say, Hey, you know, we've got a message from God. Or, and how are you going to survive? And you don't know the... Well, anyway, they came up with this brilliant idea. They, they bought a tent, and, and they, were, they were down in the lowlands where some headhunting activity had taken place, so the Bukalot knew about this area down there, but they were down in the lowlands, and they were staying in the tent during the night, and, and then in the morning, they would hike up into Bukalot territory looking for <laughs> who knows what. I mean, there's really, literally no plan here. Other than they're looking, you know, they're looking for somebody, a man of peace. That's what Jesus taught. And so they would hike up and they would hike around. And uh, Bukalo territory is an amazing place. There are huge pythons up there back then. There were large crocodiles in the river and, you know, monkey troops. And there's more danger than you could shake a stick at, you know, including being surrounded by headhunters as you're up there. So the... <sighs> Where these men found the courage to do this, I don't know. But, and they would look all day long, and, and they never ran into anybody, and then finally they'd go down into the lowland, into the, by the tent, and they'd sleep in the tent overnight, and then they'd come up in the daytime. And it happened one day that, uh, that they were up there, and it was starting to get dark. It was late in the day, and uh, they decided it's time to go back down to, to sleep in the tent. And, um, well, they, they couldn't find the trail. They lost the trail. I don't know if you've ever been lost in the jungle, I don't recommend it. It's happened to me, I think, three times now. And uh, it's not something that's, that's fun at all, being lost out in the middle of nowhere. But they couldn't find the trail. They couldn't find the trail that they had walked in on. And so they, they kept moving around until it was dark, and then finally they ended up sitting back to back next to a tree and, and listening to the night noises. And I don't know about you, but you know, if I'd been there that day, I think I'd have complained to God. I really do. I think I would have said to God, you know, God, we're, we're here. We're just trying to do what you've asked us to do. And it seems to us the least you could do is help us find this tent so we can sleep there tonight. And, and, and well, the next morning, the sun came up like it always does, the faithfulness of God. Sun came up, and, and doggone it, there was the trail. They had just missed it. They were actually sleeping right beside the trail. And so they got on the trail and went back down that morning and and, uh, and got, you know, kind of got refreshed and got recovered and came back up the next day again. And, um, and on one of those trips, about two weeks after that night spent in the forest, in the jungle, about two weeks after that, they ran into a man named, uh, named Tanitan. Tanitan. And uh, he spoke enough 
Tagalog to be able to communicate with them. And they told him, you're never going to believe this, but they told him that we are men who are here with a message from Creator God. We want to share the message with you. We want to learn your language. And, and immediately, immediately he believed them. And they didn't understand why he should take it for granted that they were men that came with a message from Creator God. But he believed them. And, uh, and he invited them to move into his house and, and accept his protection as part of his family. And so they moved into the house and they started learning language. And, and Florentino, being Filipino, was, was quicker at it than Marvin was. And that's just kind of a given over there, because those languages are related, but they're not the same at all. And, um, and after Florentino got to the place where he could talk, uh, a contingent of Bucalote men came up to him one, one afternoon and said, uh, can, can, we, can we ask you some questions? And, and Florentino said, sure. And, and they said, uh, do you remember when you were living in that cloth house down by the river? Florentino's heart picked up, and he said, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember. I remember that. Do you also remember the day that, that you, you, the night that you didn't go back into the cloth house to sleep, but you slept up in the forest, up in the mountains? And Florentino's heart is getting even faster at this point. Yeah, I, I remember that. And they said, can we ask you why you didn't come back, go back to the, the cloth house to sleep? And, and Florentino said, well, we, we got lost. <laughs> Tribal person lost in the forest is the stupidest thing he's ever heard. Just, just be aware of that. It would be like if some of you men stayed out all night and when your wife, please invite me if you're going to do this, but when your wife confronts you with being out all night, you say, oh, honey, I went to the mall, got lost in the mall, I, that's why I didn't come home last. <laughs> yeah, Right, you know, she's not going to buy that. But please invite me, because I would like to see what happens next. But these, these, you got lost, they said? Lost in the jungle? Yeah, we, we got lost. Do you mean to say then, they said, that, that you didn't know that we had surrounded the cloth house while you were up on the hill that day and were planning to kill you in your sleep that night? And Florentino said, no, I, we didn't know that. But the Bucalot assumed that they knew that. And the way they lay an ambush, and I'll explain that to some of you who are going on the trip, we'll go to a place where an ambush would be, would be very appropriate, and we won't be ambushed, don't worry about it. But I'll, I'll tell you that story. The way they lay out an ambush, uh, they would not have been visible from on the ground, I promise you. You would not have seen them hiding there in the bush. And they, they, would, have, they would have succeeded in that, in that intent with that plan. But... Uh, but the Bucalote assumed that, that Florentino and Marvin knew that they had laid an ambush. And you know, the only way they could have known that would be if someone from above, by the way, they knew nothing about airplanes, and if someone from above was looking down and saw the ambush and warned Marvin and, and Florentino to stay away from the tent that night, and their assumption was it must be a great spirit, perhaps even creator God. And so when they ran into Tanitan, well, they explained to him that, that they had come with a message from Creator God, and that made the perfect sense. Of course you did. Of course you did. It's the same one that protected you the other night. We would really like to hear this message. Well, over time, Florentino began to get to the place where he was, oh, he was so good with the language, where he was able to speak their, their language fluently and... and um, he got busy sharing the gospel and, and teaching God's word. And, and the very, very first uh, person 
among the Vukalot that ever believed was this man, Tanitan, the one who had invited them into his home, a true man of peace. And, uh, and Tanitan, he's with the Lord now. He died, oh, it's got to be eight, ten years ago now. But uh, for the remainder of his life, they referred to him as Abraham, Abraham, the father of faith to the Bukalo people. Well, by this time, there were missionaries who were working in both Kauaian and, and Gingen. And you remember the, you know, those two places. And, and somebody got the bright idea, as missionaries do. Missionaries come up with great ideas that don't make sense, at least at first. Somebody got the bright idea that we should, have, we should have like a general believers conference. We should get all the believers together. That's what we should do. And, you know, we can sing songs together. And we can pray, forgetting, <laughs> forgetting that you can't have much of a church where all the believers are dead. I mean, you can have a great church cemetery, but that really wasn't the goal. Because remember, if people from Kauaian meet people from Gingen, that meeting ends with them being dead. Because there's... Well, they went ahead with the plan. They've got, <laughs> missionaries are famous for this. You know, we're just going to trust God, whatever that means and whatever that looks like. We're just going to trust God. And so they invited the people from Gingen to come down uh, to a place named, uh, called Tabanganto. Um, uh, those of you that are going on the trip in, in, a, in three weeks, you'll see the very place where this happened. There's a big monument up to that right now and, and how this went down. But the people from Gingen came from the Gingen side. It's about a six-hour walk between uh, Kauaian and Gingen. They came down from the Gingen side and, and the people, other people came from Kauaian side and, and, and the, the women and children stayed back in the forest but there's this great big clearing there and that's why they chose that spot. And now the men have made their way out of the forest and they're standing in semicircles. The Kauaian guys are here, the Gingen guys are over there and please you have to understand this. They were looking across that circle and there stands that man that killed my father. And there's that man that killed my son. And there's that man that... And the people on the other side are looking right back at me, right back at us. And nobody knows what to do. And then Bob Gustafson, a good friend of mine who was there that day and watched all of this unfold, said that he noticed that those men that were standing there were actually, they had their... They had their bows and arrows with them, the quivers on their back, their bows in their hands, their bolos tied around their waist. They had their spears with them. And uh, Bob said that, that simultaneously, there was no signal given that he was able to perceive, but simultaneously one of the men stepped out from the Kauaian side and took a few steps towards the Gingen side as someone from the Gingen side did the same thing. They took four or five steps towards one another and, and both at the same time as though this was choreographed and I believe it was. I believe it was choreographed. Both of the men stopped after a few steps and laid down their spears. They took another few steps closer to one another and they took their quiver off and laid it down with their bow. And now they're standing face to face after another few steps. And Bob Gustafson told me that he heard one man say to the other, as they began to untie their bolos, their head-hunting bolos, they never do. As they began to untie their head-hunting bolos, one said to the other, We no longer need bees. We're brothers now. They laid down their bolos and threw their arms around one another. And the church was born. I do wish you could visit 
I really do. And I know some of us are going to, and, and maybe you'll get another opportunity at some point. But one of the things that they love to do is, is sing uh, what used to be hymn number hymn number 13 in the old, in the old hymn book uh, that's been replaced by a much larger one now. But they used to love to sing that. And a lot of times when we'd have visitors and a lot of times when we didn't, we'd... But the words to that song, and I, and I actually sang it at conference with them a, a, about a month ago when I was there. The words to that song are in their language. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time will be no more. And the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. And the saved of this earth are gathered over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder. I'll be there. That's what they sing. And you know what that means today? That means that, that the day is going to come when, uh, when we're all in heaven together, when Jesus keeps his promise and comes back and gets us and, 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 and set, takes us to the room that he's prepared for us so that we can be there with the Father together, be there with him. That you may step out of your room at some point in, in this huge mansion that his father has. You may step out of your room and look over to the left and there's going to be a Bukalot family standing right over there. And you're going to know they're Bukalot. I, I believe we're all going to speak our own language when we finally get to heaven and, and we're just going to understand one another without actually having to try. You're going to know that they're a Bukalot and, and, and you're going to look at them and you're going to say, man, I, I heard about you. And maybe, maybe it'll escape from your lips. How did you get here? I want to promise you something. When the answer comes back to that question, he's not going to talk about Florentino Santos. That family is not going to talk about Marvin Graves. They're certainly not going to talk about Jay Jackson. When you say to them, how did you get here? That friend of yours, that new friend, is going to point to the throne and he's going to say, I am here today because he was not willing that any should perish. God reached into that cesspool of humanity. He reached into the headhunting. He hazarded his own children to take the good news to those folks. The Vukalot were unreached until that point. The rest of the story comes later. I'll tell you that on, uh, before we make this next trip with the group that's, that's going. But uh, I, 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 I want us to understand that uh, I don't mean to be unkind when I talk about what he reached into. But prior to the time the missionaries showed up, the Vukalot didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know that he'd been born. They didn't know that he lived. They didn't know that he died for them, was buried, and rose again. They knew nothing of him. They were an unreached people group. The gospel had never been there. Not unchurched, but unreached. No access to the gospel whatsoever until Florentino and Marvin went in there, learned the language. In our world today, listen to me. In our world today, there are still about 2,200 unreached tribal groups. And the Bukalot would want me to encourage you this morning that that job has to be done. He's not willing that any should perish. 
question. So I, I don't want to intimidate you or force you, but I want you to ask yourself the question. He is not willing that any should perish. Am I? And if I'm not willing that they should perish, what should I do about that? I know my time is up, but I'm going to ask you to pray for me as I go. We don't have folks from Potter's House going on this trip. We ended up uh, combining the two trips and repurposing the second one. That, but there's a young couple that's going, uh, that's going to leave from Birmingham, Alabama later tonight. And we'll meet over there in the, in the Philippines. Uh, their names are Taylor and Lizzie. Please remember that. And please pray for them. Um, they're going over there to see whether they might want to join the team that, well, you're going to have to hear the rest of the story, but, but the Bucalot are now sending out missionaries and, and, uh, and training more and more tribal people as they reach the... Anyway, I, I don't have time right now. Pray for Taylor and Lizzie, that God would direct them. We don't want them to join us if, if God doesn't want that, but if he does... Uh, it's going to take a real work in their heart when, when they see the size of the job that's out there and what needs to be done. So I'd ask you to pray for that. Thank you for listening. Um, will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, thank you today for the privilege that we have of knowing you, of having grown up in a country where the, the good news is is on the news. The good news is, is on TV. The, the good news is, is in the heart of the people that, that we sometimes sit next to in restaurants or the ones that serve our meal. Or God, we know the good news. We've understood it. And, and I trust that everyone here has trusted Christ as, as their Savior, Father. But if they haven't, then, then Father, this would be a wonderful opportunity for them to follow the lead of those tribal people and, and just trust you, the fact that Jesus died for them, he was buried and he rose again. But for those of us who know you, God, help us to know that there are still thousands of unreached people groups, thousands of groups that you are not willing. You are being patient with us today. Please help us to understand the role that you want us to play so that you no longer have to be patient with us, so that you can get behind us and support us as we go and, and as we take the gospel to places where the gospel has never been. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you for the privilege of making you known. Thank you, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. By way of assignment, if I'm the coach up here, we're going out those doors, and you're not likely to run into any tribal people out there. If you do, come and get me, because I want to meet them. Um, but, uh, but you're not likely to run into any tribal people. You're likely to run into people that are unchurched and still need to hear the good news. So talk to them. You have a message that changes lives. And it might just be that God will use you, as you get used to doing that, that God will use you in another place to pray, to give, to go for the sake of the gospel. And so that leaves me with the opportunity to say, ready? Oh, wait a minute. That leaves me with the, we'll just pretend that didn't happen. That leaves me with the opportunity to say, ready? ready. Go get him, Potter's house. Go get him.